You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the remote Bible teaching now with Dr. Larry Crabb, presented by Larger Story for you all. Um, We know this is kind of crazy times, and we thought that we'd be doing this. We're going to be working tonight. Uh, Dr. Crabb will be unpacking the book of Jeremiah. And for the next four Saturday nights, we'll be doing a four-part series on the book of Jeremiah and how some of that might apply to, uh, to what's going on now and giving, uh, giving Larry an opportunity just to teach the word to us uh, for the next little bit while we go through all this uh, quarantine and uh, coronavirus issue. I want to remind everybody that um, we'll be doing this each Saturday night. And uh, before we get started here, I do want to also remind everyone, too, that we have a... Um, A new book coming out in early summer. It is titled Waiting for Heaven, Freedom from the Incurable Addiction to Self. And we want to give you all the opportunity to uh, pre-order that today for a discounted rate. So please do that if you're interested in in that book. I I think it's um, essentially a follow-up, in my opinion, to Inside Out. Um, But it's an incredible book. So I would would highly recommend this. Um, And so without any further ado... Dad, we'll turn this over to you, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Larry Crabb. Well, welcome to a few thoughts from Jeremiah on this, my first ever sermon on Zoom. This is not my typical medium, but I'm happy I'm doing it. Well, I'm glad to be speaking to you from uh, my home in Charlotte, North Carolina, and speaking to wherever you happen to be in your coronavirus-invaded world. So before we get started on looking at a few thoughts that will lead us into Jeremiah, I just want to pray for a moment. So... If you'll just uh, pray with me, I'd like to offer this prayer to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll alert us to the story you're telling that is moving along on schedule, even as our world is pretty well shut down. Lord Jesus, alert us to what your work on the cross makes possible, because you make the impossible possible for all of your followers to experience something that's real, even as we were restricted to our homes. And Holy Spirit, alert us to what you began to do when we met Jesus and to what you're continuing to do, even as we live now in such uncertainty and danger. Well, like me, I imagine all of you are struggling with a number of things and perhaps having a bunch of reactions to it, maybe different thoughts, different feelings. And I just want to share two things among others that are going on within me these last uh, this last week in particular, but the last couple of weeks, but even more so this last week. And this will get us into what I want to be talking to you about. Two things that have been going on with me that are a little bit strange. Number one, my habit for decades has been to get up early every morning, go to bed early and get, er- er- get up early about 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock. But this last week in particular, I've simply not wanted to get out of bed. I've had no interest in getting out of bed. Um, and I don't quite understand that. But the, um, the implications of my life in this panoramic, in this panoramic, in this pandemic, the implications of all this going on in this pandemic have uh, pretty much kind of thwarted a certain level of excitement within me. And staying in bed for a lot longer time has just occurred to me. Why bother to get up? It's just the same old, same old every day. uh, I've lost some of the sense of adventure in my life. Now, you can call that a a sedia, the inability to care. Maybe that's something you're struggling with. But I've been feeling that this last week. I wonder what Jeremiah is going to say to me about that. 
That's my first reaction that I'm having. And the second reaction is that during the, during the morning when I do wake up, but don't get up, and then all during the day, I find my mind just drifting into a bunch of pleasant memories of things that are no more. Memories of 53 years ago, my honeymoon with Rachel. Uh, memories of taking grandchildren to Disney World. Memories of all sorts of wonderful memories. Memories of a round of golf where my golf mate could actually um, shake my hand and congratulate me if I rarely ended up hitting a drive down the fairway. I would have enjoyed that. That can't be done anymore. People are playing golf, but they're not touching each other. And I just am thinking about these memories, and they're simply not going away. And I don't quite understand that. Well, remember, what do you suppose these, these, um, these memories really have to do? Are you just thinking, come on, Larry, that's just normal. Well, it is kind of normal, I suppose. But I want you to think a little bit more deeply with me. What is going on in my not yet glorified soul that is showing up in my morning episodes of pouting over the day that's ahead that I don't even want to face particularly, as well as my wistful longings for a better day um, that uh, from the past that are no longer here? Well, I just was having a little flight of imagination, and I thought, well, let me suppose now that I've been studying Jeremiah for a while, thinking about it and developing some thoughts, it occurred to me, what if Jeremiah were to visit me, hearing that I'm sleeping later than at normal out of a sense of lack of energy about getting up? And secondly, I'm thinking about memories in the past that are no more and certainly are not exp being experienced now. What would Jeremiah say to me? Well, I jotted out a thought as to what I think based on the book of Jeremiah what I think he might say to me, I think he might say this, Larry, you're getting a little taste of the big taste that I was given when I set out to do what God told me to do. The journey that you're on now is going to have you feeling entitled to a long rest without pressing responsibilities and struggles. It's going to be tough. You're going to be looking for a certain kind of rest. And it's going to make you very aware of a longing in your soul, what C.S. Lewis called the inconsolable longing, that's never going to be satisfied until you get to heaven, where I've been now for a very long time, that feels like one incredibly satisfying day. Make sure that you stay focused on the day that's coming. That's my suggestion as to what Jeremiah might say to me. That'll become a little clear as to why he talked like that. Won't you look a little more carefully at his life? Well, tonight I want to begin, it's going to be a four-message series on what I want you to understand is going to be both on the, the book of Jeremiah as well as the man Jeremiah. And I'm really hoping and trusting that perhaps the Spirit will speak with words that we need to hear as we live through this difficult crisis. The book begins with the Lord talking to maybe an eight-year-old teenager named Jeremiah who had every expectation of a pleasant life in priestly ministry in a little village outside of Jerusalem, kind of distant from Jerusalem, called Anathoth. And he expected to be just living in that rather pleasant village and uh, living that life in a very simple kind of a way. And God said, I have other plans for you. Let me read, read with you from the book of Jeremiah, the opening, some of the opening verses, starting at verse 4 in chapter 1. And I want you just to listen to what, um, what, what Jeremiah Here's from God. The Lord gave me this message. Jeremiah is writing this. The Lord gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, 
I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. O sovereign Lord, I said, I can't speak for you. I'm too young. The Lord replied, don't say I'm too young. For you must go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you. And don't be afraid of the people, for I will be with you and I will protect you. Now, as I read those verses, I see certain things. What do you see? Here are a couple of things that I that come to me as I just read those verses to you and read them this afternoon to myself a number of times. And number one, I see a God who had a plan for a young man's life. Secondly, I see a man who had no interest in going into that plan, felt entirely inadequate to join the story God was telling to be a part of the plan that God had for his life. I see a reluctance on Jeremiah's part. And then I see God, and this is the most important part of it, I think, I see God promising to protect him from whatever he feared. I will protect you. Those are the words of the Lord. Lord. And the last thing that I would think was happening in Jeremiah that I think I'm seeing is that Jeremiah, no doubt, had a certain set of expectations as to what God would protect him from. God, you told me you're going to protect me, and I assume that means that all that I fear, you're not going to allow me to experience. And then, as you know, if you know the story of Jeremiah, as he went through a 40-year ministry, he, he, he was not protected from hatred. He was not protected from a plot on his life. He was not protected from being put in the stocks. He was not protected by being beaten and whipped by a high priest. He wasn't protected from all sorts of things that he was expecting to be protected from. What the Dickens is going on? Well, that's my introduction to the book. For the next 52 chapters, book of Jeremiah, we have the record of what I'm calling the success of a failed prophet. What an interesting title, The Success of a Failed Prophet. Now, by normal standards, obviously, Jeremiah was a failed prophet. He spoke for 40 years what God had given him to say, and nobody listened to him at all. He was miserable. That becomes very clear. We know more about his life than any other prophet. And he was miserable, and I suppose that maybe the proper title for this book should be The Misery of a Failed Prophet, but that's not what I'm choosing to call it. Now, perhaps you all know this, but I think it's important. The book of Jeremiah is the second longest book in the Bible. Psalms, obviously, is the longest book in the Bible. And some of you are probably saying, well, Isaiah is longer than Jeremiah. It's got 66 chapters, and Jeremiah just has 52. But what you might not know, there are more Hebrew words in the book of Jeremiah than there are in the book of Isaiah. So, Um, Jeremiah is the second longest book in the Bible. Now, that's important for at least two reasons. Number one, of all the prophets and servants of God whose lives and ministries are recorded in the Bible, no one's life and ministry is more thoroughly detailed than the life of Jeremiah. We're told about his life in, in excruciating detail. We're told about his resistance to God's call. We're, talked about, we're told about the laments, the, the angry laments that he spewed against God in Jeremiah 23. We'll look at that a little bit later. Heart-rending laments several times. And my, my question is, God, why is the book of Jeremiah the longest book in the Bible? Why have you devoted the, the second longest book in the Bible? Why have you devoted the second longest book in the Bible to the story about a failed prophet. That's a question that has, has me thinking. What's, what's the point of that, God? 
Second thing that occurs to me when I realize that the book of Jeremiah is the second longest book in the Bible is God must have a message in this book that he really wants us to hear. And I wonder what that is. That's what we're going to be kind of get into. Um, if, if he devoted the second longest book of the Bible to the life and the message of Jeremiah, there's got to be something that he really wants us to hear, particularly in these days of the pandemic. <clears throat> now, let me give you a little bit of a side here for a moment. When I approach any book of the Bible, wanting to study it and hear God speak to me in the book, I approach it with what might be called humble skepticism. Humble, because since I believe the Bible is God's word, God's message of love to us, and because I believe God is loving me in the middle of whatever is going on in my life, whether it's a good doctor's report or a dangerous virus threatening millions of lives across the world, I'm confident that he's saying something that I need to hear, even when I stay in bed too long and distract myself from present concerns with pleasant memories. That's the humble part. I want to come before the book of Jeremiah, humble, saying, I know you have something you want me to hear. But I approach it with a certain skepticism that I think is healthy. It doesn't sound like a very good word in Bible study, but this is what I mean. The skeptical part seems necessary because too often the Bible, at first glance, doesn't seem to be speaking with power into the troubles that I'm experiencing. Am I really hearing what God is saying to me at a deep level, or do I just read a rather interesting book and then go and go to bed or have dinner or whatever I'm going to be doing? But I rather I want to want to come skeptically, saying that I, I just am not understanding what you're trying to say, God, and I'm, I'm not getting it. I know you have an important message out of already assuming in my humility, but in my skepticism, I'm really not hearing it, and I don't quite know how to hear it. And that skepticism over the years, and certainly in this study of Jeremiah, has has driven me. And it's become an invitation to, to really think hard and to wrestle and to, um, and, and to study the passage of the book that I'm, that I'm reading. So with those two thoughts, I'm telling you all this to set up what I think I'm seeing in Jeremiah that, um, that I think are going to be perhaps, perhaps important. So approaching the book of Jeremiah with humble skepticism, three questions occur to me. As I've read through the 52 chapters, as I've pondered them, read a few commentaries, three questions have been staring me in the face, three questions that beg, if not an answer, at least a response of some sort. And if the second longest book in the Bible is going to reach me with a message that perhaps today more than ever we need to hear, then maybe we need to ask these questions. And let me just again talk about, about question one. Um, the, the first question really has to do with the word why. God why have you told me so much about Jeremiah's life and message? I know I'm to learn something important about who you are, about what you're doing that's good during these difficult days, uh, what's going on in me and my immature response of sleeping too late and living in the happiness of earlier days that were better. But why? God, help me understand. Why is such a long book about a failed prophet? That's the first question I'm going to be thinking about a little bit today in these next couple of weeks. The second question isn't a why question, it's more of a what question. Very important question. What was going on in the world of God's people when Jeremiah was preaching? What was going on in that religious culture of Judaism back in the days of Jeremiah that made it difficult for people to hear God's message? What was happening in the culture? Or to put it a little differently, what false message 
was spreading then and perhaps is spreading in our culture today that makes it difficult to hear the true message from God. Now, I hope you're hearing what I'm saying here, that as, as we're going to look a little later into the culture of Judaism in the day when Jeremiah was preaching, something was going on that blinded their eyes and messed up their hearing of what God was saying to them through Jeremiah. They simply couldn't hear it. Their, their culture was just opposed to it. What was that culture? And there's something going on in our culture today that is similar to what was going on in the days of Jeremiah that may be keeping us from hearing what God is saying to us in the middle of the struggles of life, in the middle of today's struggles with the, with the, the whole coronavirus difficulties. And I want to understand that. I want to know what the culture actually might be. That's question two. What is a false message that's spreading in our Christian culture? That's what I'm concerned with. That makes it difficult to hear a true message from God. Then I have a third question that I think is rather important. Who? First question was why. Second question was what. Now the question is who. Have you noticed that who God called to deliver his message, Jeremiah, was an insecure, inexperienced teenage kid? Who God chose makes little sense. A scared child to do a confident man's job. Couldn't God have made a better choice? Now, let me just think about that with you for just a moment. God called this frightened boy to take on the priests of Jerusalem. Now, he was already the son of a priest, a priest named Hilkiah. But something to notice about Hilkiah, Hilkiah was not doing his priestly work in Jerusalem. He was not an important figure in the Jewish culture of the priests. He was in a little deserted, not deserted, but not very populated town called Anathoth. And that's where Hilkiah was a priest, and that's where Jeremiah was raised, expecting, no doubt, to follow a humble ministry as a priest, just talking to a few people and carrying out the different rituals and things that priests had to do back in that day. And that was his expectation. And when God called this frightened boy to take on the priests of Jerusalem, because the priests in Jerusalem were far from God, and he wanted this young boy who was a son of a priest at a town outside of Jerusalem, to go into Jerusalem and to speak directly to the priests. And, and he did that. And especially, if you know the story, he was preaching to a priest named Peshur. And Peshur was a priest in the temple. And he was so upset with Jeremiah's message that he actually arrested Jeremiah. He whipped him and he put him in the stocks. Why would God send somebody who was not going to be listened to, an outsider. It seems to me that it might be wiser for God to have chosen an insider in Jerusalem. Surely there was at least one religious figure in the temple that was seeking after God that he could have chosen. So why didn't God do that? It seems to me it's important um, in understanding the Bible to ask the questions that God is bothering to answer. And these three questions are the questions that I believe, among others, I'm sure, but these three are very much standing out in my mind as questions that God is choosing to answer in the book of Jeremiah that I think are going to be answers that, that, that are going to speak to us in the middle of our current situation in life. So just to say them again a little bit with a little bit different wording, and I don't need the slides back up on this one, but just to ask, ask about question one, why such a long book? about a failed prophet who engaged in 40 years of a failed ministry. It seems to me 
that I could have been a lot more encouraged from reading a prophet in the days of Jeremiah if God had equipped a prophet, maybe a different one than Jeremiah, to present a message that was a great success. I like to hear stories of success. I don't like hearing stories of failure. I want to hear that, you know, my ministry, I had a ministry now for all these years and has it been successful? Yeah, by some standards it has. Has it reached all the people I want to reach? No, it hasn't. Has there been some pushback? Has there been a resistance? Yeah, there's been all of that. And I wonder, no matter what our calling is, whether it's a ministry job or whether it's a different kind of a job, whatever, we're all called to represent Jesus. How's it going? Some cases pretty well. And we love success stories. We want to look in the mirror and say, God, I think I'm in your favor. Jeremiah could never have said that. He could never have responded to God by saying, God, I'm so enjoying your favor. From his perspective, he didn't enjoy anything close to God's favor, and it was tough for him. So my question is, God, why are you spending all this time teaching about an unsuccessful prophet? Or am I right in saying that there is a different kind of success? Is God wanting to get through to us that success is being rather poorly defined in our uh, poorly defined in our Western culture? That success is very, very different than things going the way we want them to go. Captus uh, mentioned a book that I've just written. It feels like a very important book to me. It really came out of my own soul as I began to realize that um, I really haven't heard a sermon for probably 20 years. That's a guess, but it's pretty close to accurate, I think. Haven't heard a sermon for maybe two decades that's centered on the second coming of Christ. As I thought about that a number of months ago, I thought back to the sermons that I've been privileged to preach over the last 20 or so years, and I'm not sure if any one of them centered on the theme of the second coming of Christ. Why would that be? Why is the second coming of Christ not really a central message today? Why is it that a great many sermons, a great many of Christian books are really coming up with principles from the scriptures that if you follow, you can expect to have the favor of God. If you follow these principles, you can expect to have the blessings of God that'll make your life comfortable, that you'll be able to be a success. Maybe that's what God, that is not what God calls success. Are we going to learn a very revolutionary new understanding of what the word success means by studying the book of Jeremiah? Well, that's all wrapped up in question one. Why such a story of a failed prophet? And was he a success? Is it the story of the success of a failed prophet in the book of Jeremiah? Question one. The second question, what was true in the culture of God's people in Jeremiah's day that made their resistance to God's message really inevitable? And once we get some understanding of that, which we'll get a little bit later, another sermon, once we get some understanding of that, I think we're going to see that some of the difficulties that were going on in the culture of Jeremiah's day maybe even more pronounced, are going on in our Christian culture today? Are there new versions that are catching on rather widely and have been for some years of the prosperity gospel that are essentially saying you can know the favor of God by having the things that you want, the health that you want, the money that you want, whatever form of success you want, it's all available to you? What was the culture that was going on in Jeremiah's day that might be going on in our day that we need to be sensitive to. I remember I did a Bible study just a while ago. Well, it's been about two years, I guess. A Bible study in the book of Jude. And the book of Jude really kind of floored me a little bit because what Jude was talking about, he said that certain men, and this is a quote from the, one of the first few verses in the short book of Jude, certain men are creeping in, have crept in unawares. You don't see what they're doing. And they're 
they're distorting, they're denying the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. These people are false teachers. What was false teaching in Jeremiah's day? What's false teaching in our day that is blinding us to the true teaching of the scriptures? Jeremiah, Jeremiah I think, is going to give us some understanding of that. And then the third one, who God chose made very little sense. Well, I can recall in my earlier days um, going to the church of my background, and there was a preacher that was a traveling preacher that I heard probably preached, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 times. And something he said that always gripped me. It didn't feel theatrical when he said it, but he said it many, many times in almost every sermon that I heard him preach. He said, Lord, when you got me, you got gypped. Ever felt that way? The Lord chose you to be part of his family. He chose you to whatever sphere of influence you can have. He chose me in that same way. I believe he's called me to be a writer. God, why did you choose me? You know the mess that's still inside of me in ways that nobody else knows. You know me completely, and still you love me like nobody else does. God, I really don't quite understand your choice of Jeremiah, and I really don't quite understand your choice of me to do the things that you've called me to do, and I want to understand that. Well, let me just give you, in the last couple of minutes here of this um, first brief introductory sermon, let me give you a quick foretaste of what's to come in the next three Saturday night sermons. Number one, first question that we're asking, could it be that God is less interested in the success of our ministry, and more interested in the success of scared Christians persevering, remaining faithful to our call to live as heaven-bound people living in a hell-bound world. Is God redefining what it means to be successful? I've, a verse in Colossians has been haunting me for quite a while now. Colossians 1.11, God says, I want you to know, Paul says, God says through Paul, Colossian Christians, I want you to know the almighty power of God that does what? Well, that makes you successful. That gives you enough money to pay your bills and enjoy dinner out, maybe a good vacation. I want you to know the almighty power of God that keeps you healthy, that keeps you feeling good all the time. It's not what he says. I want you to know the almighty power of God that will help you endure and be patient. The obvious implication, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be struggles along the way. The road is narrow. And the word for narrow in Matthew 7 is a word that means afflicted and troubled. So could it be that God is redefining success on the Christian journey for his disciples? That's the first thing we're going to look at more closely in the next, um, the next message. And the second question that um, give you a little foretaste of my thoughts on it, God, is it possible that our Christian culture has lost the awareness that repentance is the route to joy. There's an old book called uh, called Repentance. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, one of the more readable of the Puritans, has a book on repentance. And he spends a lot of time on false repentance, where I repent of my sin so I can get back God's favor, 
where I admit that I failed, I've messed up, God, I know I'm wrong. But now that I'm confessing my sin, now that I'm changing my mind and repenting, now I really feel kind of entitled to your blessings. I really feel entitled that now you're going to give me what I've wanted. And the purpose of my repentance was not to draw closer to you and to be more aligned with your purposes for me. The purpose of repentance was to get you to be a little bit a little bit nicer to me, maybe, to bless me in certain ways that you simply haven't blessed me, and I want you to change that if you would, God. Is that something we're going to see that's going on? Has our culture lost the awareness that repentance is the root to joy? Do we not even know what is within us that needs to be repented of? I've often said to different places where I've taught, I've often said, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. Never had an affair, uh, never been drunk, uh, never looked at pornography. I'm really quite a godly man. And it seems to me that repentance belongs to other people. Oh, maybe I do a few little bad things once in a while. But repentance means nothing until we realize that what we have to repent of is truly ugly in the sight of God. What is that? Well, that's a problem that I think we have. Have we lost the concept that there are things within my life or even now, even though I'm leading what would look like a pretty good life, and in some ways it is a pretty good life and a pretty moral life, a very moral life actually, but are the things within me that need to be repented of? Or have we trivialized repentance in the telling God we're sorry that we failed, so we'll get back in his good graces and everything will go well in our lives? We're going to look at that a little more carefully. And then the, th the third question that we talked about, why did God choose a scared teenager to carry the message to his people? Was God illustrating what he said in Isaiah chapter, where is it in Isaiah? It's in Isaiah, I think it's, I don't even have a list of my notes here, but it's on the slide, so I'll put that up now. That the wisdom of the wise will pass away and the intelligence of the intelligent will disappear. Now, just think about that. The screen's going to come up there. There we are, Isaiah 29, 14, the last part of it. The wisdom of the wise will pass away. The intelligence of the intelligent will disappear. Do we just depend on our wisdom to get through life, on our intelligence? Are we assuming that we have what it takes to get the message out really clearly? Why did God choose this kid? Is he saying that I'm no longer depending on human wisdom? I never have depended on human wisdom, and I'm going to depend on something else that's very, very different. And Paul, I think, echoed those words from Isaiah when he said in uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty one, God said this, another slide is coming up here. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Let me say that, let me say that again. Hear that, hear that verse again, 1 Corinthians one twenty one. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. So what do I have to offer? Well, divine wisdom. Do I have it? Am I really depending on the spirit within me to provide the kind of wisdom that is not merely coming out of the fact that maybe I'm kind of smart? God saw to it, and his wisdom, he saw to it, that the world would never know him through human wisdom, and he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. I find that somewhat encouraging, because maybe the preaching of mine is foolish sometimes, but maybe God could use it. Maybe God could use these um, Saturday night sermons, these Bible studies, to be a blessing in some way. 
Let me close this opening talk with a quote from a book that was written in 1949. The book is called Christianity and History, and it was written by a man named Herbert Butterfield, professor of history at Cambridge University in England, and he was reflecting on the carnage and rubble of World War II, and he arrived at the conclusion that you're now seeing on the screen. Sheer grimness of suffering. How about, how about this remarkable message? Sheer grimness of suffering brings men sometimes into a profounder understanding of human destiny. Is that just too negative? Is that just something that nobody's ready to hear? Is our culture buying into a false gospel that makes them read that kind of a sentence and walk away from it and saying, oh, stop bothering us with all this down talking, sheer grimness of suffering? I want no parts of that. God doesn't want me to suffer. He wants me to be healed. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to be wealthy. He wants me to have all the blessings I need. And this gentleman from Cambridge University said otherwise sheer grimness of suffering. As you look back on history, and he was saying that this seems to be the lesson of history, that sheer grimness of history brings men sometimes into a profounder understanding of human destiny. I really would like to know where everything's headed. I want to know when the pandemic is going to end. I want to know when I can eat out again at a restaurant. I want to know when I can do a lot of things that I just can't do now, walk out of my house whenever I feel like it and drive to a coffee shop or drive, go shopping into a mall. I can't do any of that now. And, and, I, and I want it to change. And is my human destiny that I'm going to be able to do that again in a month or two months or three months or whenever it is, nobody knows. And what Butterfield is telling us is that no, no, human destiny is not getting back to life as we want it to be. Human destiny goes way, way beyond that. But we're not going to understand it. We're not going to grasp it without some level of suffering, some grimness of suffering of difficulty. And the suffering may be no more than just a recognition that I'm thirsty for water that I cannot fully drink yet. I can have the sips of water, but I can't have the gulps. I'm not going to have my thirst entirely quenched until I'm with the Lord. Somebody who talked about the exhaustion of unsatisfied desire. There's suffering in that. I want this so deeply in the core of my soul. That's what I really, really want. And, um, and it just isn't going to be the, going to be the case. Um, let me just remind you again, because the word repentance is really quite critical. The Doctrine of Repentance is the book that was I've mentioned by Thomas Watson, The Doctrine of Repentance. And I think it's an important book to, to understand uh, what it means to repent when we're in pain. Usually we grumble about the pain, but don't recognize an attitude within us within the pain that is really not at all good and requires repentance. So sheer goodness of suffering. One more thought on that, or one last thought on that. What I want to do as I finish up is give you one more quote. One more quote. Let me introduce the quote by saying this. In times like these, we need to know that a larger story is being told that is unfolding in the darkest night. Perhaps the grim suffering that we're seeing in the world today can let us hear what the Apostle Peter said to us in chapter 1 and verse 13. Put all your hope, not in the pandemic ending, put all your hope, not in keeping your health. God hasn't promised that to us. He hasn't promised to save our health. He's promised to save our souls. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world, because then 
the prosperity gospel makes sense because then we're not going to be spoiled children feeling entitled to all the blessings of God. Then we're going to see Jesus and we're going to say, God, you are everything. You have done everything for me. How could I want anything other than to be with you? And then when that fleshly energy of wanting to feel entitled to all the things that I think I should have, when that's completely eliminated, then God's going to just pour out every blessing he can think of. And that's going to last for eternity, but all your hope in then, not in now. And I believe we're going to see that that's at least one element in the message of Jeremiah. Well, a whole lot more about all that I'm talking about today, my introduction, more about that's going to be coming up in next Saturday night's sermon. Thank you for listening. I hope it's been an encouragement to you to think about the way God is wanting to maneuver into our lives and accomplish his good purposes as we live in these difficult days. And thanks so much for that. Um, and thanks for agreeing to do this. Um, I, when you when you open up the scriptures, and I've been with you a lot, and you've done this, I feel spiritually fed. Mm. Uh, and I'm already excited for next uh, next Saturday night to hear what part two of your Jeremiah series looks like. I want to remind everyone who's with us today too that um, that Larry does a monthly webinar. Um, this these uh, last few months have been on conversations that matter. It will be happening April 28th, which is a Tuesday evening. Um, our guest that, that, uh, for this webinar will be senior pastor at Scottsdale Bible Church, Jamie Rasmussen. If you're interested in seeing this, a very different webinar than what you just experienced now. There's also some question and answer time, and we'd love for you to join us. If you have any interest in that, please go to largerstory.com backslash webinars and get a chance to sign up there. Also, those of you who are signed up now, you do not need to re-register for this webinar. You will be automatically re-registered for it. Um, and the password issues that we've seemed to have had a little bit of should be also put into the link. So it should all happen automatically now. Um, you can see that with this webinar, we really didn't want to put a lot of time constraints on dad. Um, so I just, just to let you all know that it's probably going to be somewhere between 25 and 45 minutes each Saturday night. So we'd love for you to join us. Also, um, if you haven't had the chance, get online and pre-order your book that we have coming out in the summertime. Waiting for Heaven. Dad talked a little bit about that tonight, but um, it was great. I, I, I hope you all stay safe, and um, thank you for joining us this evening. God bless you all. Thank you. Good night. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.